This. This is, this is diversified, diversified, diversified game, game, game. game. A podcast giving entrepreneurial advice from a diverse and inclusive perspective with Kelly. He may agree, he may oppose, and it's more than just race, it's about, you know, ideas. So, let the game begin. Hey, it's Kellen on Diversified Game. I have another type of new interview I'm going to do with Chinene Ekwemesi of Iconify. Now, if I butchered her name at all, she is going to correct me. But we are <laughs> absolutely yes, and I love it, and I love it because we all can be corrected. And I think sometimes I know too much. So it's a beautiful thing. But you guys on Diversified Game, this is our first time talking. And we are going to have a different type of conversation where, you know, it's always a conversation, but we're going to get to know each other and show you guys how you can connect, especially if you're trying to improve your soft skills, see the things we say, see the things we don't say. But welcome to the show, Chinene. Hey. Hi. So my name is Chinene Ikwemesi. You are... This time, only 64% of the way there, but I appreciate that you tried and it's 100% intention and that's fine for me. Thank you. Awesome. Well, welcome, welcome to the show and to the conversation. Can Thank you. you. Can you let So my company is called Iconify, which is a verb mm-hmm. and it's, it's a verb of the word icon, of the noun icon, and it's to make something. And how did you come up with that name? Well, I wanted to work with businesses who didn't necessarily have access to the kinds of expertise that the companies I spent most of my working life in, who didn't have access to that that kind of expertise, who didn't necessarily have the kinds of expenditure that big companies would have to use in defending their position. so my idea was to help those companies give them the expertise to grow into brands of the future. And that's how I came up with that name. Okay. And so, I mean, I, you know, we're connected on LinkedIn, so I can kind of see and, and cheat, but I assume you worked with some big corporate before going full-time entrepreneur. Yes, I did. So most of my working life I had spent working for very large, recognizable uh, brands, household names like um, Lloyd's of London, Lloyd's Banking Group, uh, British American Tobacco. I work for Yahoo. I work for HSBC. And um, it was obviously a wonderful experience. I gained lots of knowledge on lots of different areas in business, but I wanted to work with businesses that were smaller to medium enterprises, who had the bones to do great things in the future, but maybe didn't have the roadmaps to get there and who I could help to think beyond just branding, beyond just an identity, but actually what is the capability that you need to get to where your promise is taking people in their expectations? How do you bridge that gap and make sure that the promise you have on one hand, you have the capability to meet on the other? And what gave that urge? Because it was it that you were just tired of, you know, um, listening to other people and having a boss and having, you know, to ask for time off. Um, what what was it? Well, in the last roles I held, I had quite a lot of autonomy. I was the boss. Um, 
of course, I still had a boss. So but it, the, the driving force for me was that I got to a point where I felt that my skills and my my education and my abilities just weren't being used enough. And I hate the term glass ceiling, but I effectively hit that. I was doing a lot of work with people that I felt I not just compared with, but I exceeded and I just wasn't getting the opportunities. And I just felt, well, maybe I need to do something and get myself those opportunities. I mean, in many of the organizations, I mean, a, a, a woman, a woman of color is still quite, you know, it's not novel, but it's not as ubiquitous as you would like it to be. And I did feel like I need to do something where I'm using all of my uh, my power, my my ability, not just for myself, but to help other people come up and be visible and be recognized. And one of the drivers of Iconify is actually to work with people of color and bring more diversity to projects that people can see that actually we can do, create better solutions when people from different backgrounds are given an opportunity to weigh in on creating solutions. Okay, no, that's that's a beautiful thing. Are, and are you born in the UK or were you born in Nigeria? I was born in Nigeria. Uh, I have spent most of my life here, um, here in the UK. Um, and But I, I think of myself as both a Nigerian and uh, a British person. Um, I'm, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I'm, I'm British-Nigerian. Okay. Okay. And, and I just, I just asked that just because, you know, um, we see so many people now, uh, black people rushing to Africa. I mean, they've really found the vibranium in Africa and, you know, there's a new YouTube channel every week and YouTube is a big thing in my life. We handle influencers, um, whether it's their business, their, you know, PR consulting, whatnot. So I just kind of wanted to see where where you are with that so, I, yeah yeah so a lot of people are moving or going to africa but i don't believe that they're necessarily going as black people to go and contribute i know that a lot of people are going to exploit it so the story of africa is really a story of exploitation and we talk a lot about it's a third world it's not developed you know the reason africa is not developed is because the rest of the world has been developed on the back of africa so I don't like to get too political in this situation, but actually many of the people that are going out to Africa are people that are coming from other countries that are not necessarily going back to Africa or thinking, well, I think now as a black person, now as a Nigerian person, now as a Cameroonian person is the time for me to go back. You have to remember that people are still in privations that they really don't need to be in because of the after effects of colonization, because of corrupt governments, which is a key factor really of the after effects of colonization. And many people are still leaving Africa or trying in droves. We are living in Britain that's in Brexit times at this, yeah. at this particular point where we are keeping people on the channel, trying to stop them from coming in here and they're dying on dinghies. Many of them are coming from Africa. So when we say we see an, you know, people going to Africa, it's not an exodus. It's not a homecoming. It's a lot of people just going because you can see that there's more exploitation to be done. And a lot of people are going to be part of that party. Well, I always say 
for black people in America, especially, um, I found that sometimes Brits have a, a, a deeper connection, but um, it's sometimes that if you're gonna go as a black American, go to learn, go to, um, you can't teach an African anything. You can come with your money and, and do a business, but don't come and think you're gonna be a savior. Only Jesus saves and put your money and, and learn because um, yes, we are black. We, you know, we share similar things, even certain pigeon words, you know, black folks are surprised to hear, wait, I thought we created that. And you're like, no, that's pigeon, you know, and, and the more that you learn and you're open, the more that you can kind of, um, I say it's a assimilation. You are who you are, but don't go there saying poor Africa, because then you just become a colonizer and we don't need any more of those. And, you know, this is somebody who invest, invest in Africa uh, so much so where, you know, I, I tell everybody about this book. And I say, read this book. You have to read this book. And this book could make you a millionaire um, if you study it and not just read it. So is your business a business, you know, that you focus your clients only in the UK or do you, does it also expand to Nigeria? Ah, it's interesting that you say that. So I'm currently uh, having some talks with a Nigerian, well, actually uh, an African uh, group banking group that spans quite a lot of uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And um, I have been in, in, in conversations about possibly doing some work with them. Um, I've done some work through um, one of the consultants in our collective within East Africa, quite a lot of work in East Africa. Um, I haven't really done anything yet in Nigeria proper, but I'm hoping that that's going to change soon. Um, I'm hoping to do more work in the United States, etc. I think for me, I just want to be working on things where there's an opportunity to grow, to be challenged and to do a work on a plethora of um, ideas in terms of its technology, there's branding, there's change management. And there's an opportunity to learn and to teach. And it, you know, I'm quite open to projects and wherever they come from. And, and what is, you know, if you had to pick one thing, and, and I ask this question because when people ask me, I never just give them a, a direct answer because of the question is, you know, what's that one thing that you really just love to do? For, for businesses, you know, is it in the technology space? Is it more in their strategy? And those things are so interlocked where, you know, if you have the right technology, your strategy can change. But what are one of those things that you just kind of stand out that you do better than most? Uh, so my background is Technology. So I've started out working in software engineering and then went on to manage projects uh, in lots of different spaces, really. Um, but I think what I've enjoyed and what's, what's great uh, and maybe similar across whichever areas I, I would pick is understanding really what the problem is, understanding what the shifting sands are beneath the business that mean that the factors of the problem aren't as simple as maybe what the business owners or the people that direct the business think it is. And just trying to understand what those root causes are 
And I suppose in a way, that's the idea of Iconify, saying where you're facing challenges that are, you know, that are pressing and you know, they're common to many businesses, it's not just coming from one area. So you may come in thinking, actually, it's a branding problem. It's a brand development issue. But then you find actually at its core, it's that your technology isn't where it needs to be. It's not taking you where you are seeing yourself because it's just limited. You are constrained in some way in the capability of your business. So I think for me, it's that strategy bit. It's that understanding, right, okay, I'm sitting in the seat now. I'm pretending to be you doing these jobs and trying to understand what the challenges are especially in the areas of integration with the people that you hand off to, with the companies that you hand off to, with the people that are handing off to you, how does that look? How can we create a roadmap that takes you from where the challenges are today to not only a solution, but also that allow you to take advantage of, take advantage of opportunities that are available or that may be upcoming. So, I think it's strategy that gets you to a state of readiness as an organization to do more and be more. That excites me more than anything. Okay. And, and since we keep talking about technology, um, my, my audience is always, they always hear me talk about certain books and I showed you one of them, but have you read the future is faster than you think? No, I haven't. Okay. I, I'm going to, I'm going to send that book to you via audible. Um, just because like when I, when I, that's another book that I love to study and the author is a genius. Um, and I, I live in Peter, I'm going to send it to you. He, his background is, and, and I send it while I'm like talking to you, I'm going to, I'm going to send it to you. Um, Peter is a person who went to Harvard only cause he's like, um, Indian or something like that. And his dad made him go to Harvard. Right but he owns a rocket company. Um, and he also does a conference that I really wanted to go to this year. Um, you know, we have to always thank COVID, but it's a comp, you know, I love conferences, but it's, it's, it's a conference. It's a conference that costs like, you know, 15,000 quid. So you're, it, it's something that there's some substance when you pay these higher prices and every conference I've gone to that is like that, I found some game changing, you know, connections, and I've never even paid that much, but I, I've paid. I have a budget just for conferences, but I will send it to you um, in the Audible uh, format. And and it is a. Um, I think it. I think you'll you'll love it. So and and that book. What are the core messages? Well, there's so many, but the the basics of it to break it down is let me tell you what we're already doing because he didn't just become a Harvard doctor. He didn't even like practice medicine like that. He, he wanted his own rocket ship company. He's one of these people who has, you know, dozens and dozens of companies. And so they're showing you that the future is faster than you think, like having a 24 hour 3d home, they're already doing it in South and Central America. And you can then go not just hear about it, but go study the person who's doing it. And I'm a person who's always looking into technology. Some of the companies that I've worked with, you know, it's, they're doing things that are many people, they're not for end users, let's just say. You need to be yeah. savvy. And I live in that space without having, um, my degrees aren't in that space, but I've always, I grew up with the computer and I've always, my mind explored. And if you tell me something, if I were interested in it, I'll probably have it, you know, packed down the basics at least. 
in, by the week. Uh, so that's that's just you know just trying to see with technology, are you in the cutting edge? Because even what we do, I tell my team all the time, we will be replaced at one point. I can replace a lot of you just with automation now because I'm always looking at the new software that's coming out and you know the things that CNN don't necessarily brag about, but they use, or even having your own private server. I have my own server. I think every entrepreneur should have their own server because there's things that we can control in there. And you know, in, in full disclosure, I used to work for the company that it's a Taiwanese company. And so I kind of understand because I'm like platinum certified in the server, um, how it works. But I'm like, this is needed because at any time they could cut us off. They could cut our websites off if we don't have our own. But if you have your own server, they can't do that in theory at least. Well, I mean, there are a lot of very broad statements there and quite a lot to unpack. I mean, uh, in terms of cutting edge technologies, what we call tech, well, by the time it's in the ap application space, by the time you're using it to solve problems, they're really not going to be cutting edge. And if you think about what we said at the beginning about then, you know, the technology your friend works with not being end user applications, you see that the sense is there that for things to be, to have large um, widespread applicability, they need, to, they really can't at that stage still be cutting edge. It's got to be tried. It's got to be tested. People have had to have had to find uh, uses for it and had to find where it's most efficient to work. So most of the technology that I work with or try to help people to get involved with is really not going to be cutting edge. I mean, people are still talking about big data, but big data is like seven, eight years back. And now we're really looking at the plethora of everything around intelligent automation, right? So it's not going to be cutting edge. In terms of owning your own infrastructure, I think that really depends on the capability you've got to maintain it and run it. So I wouldn't, you know, I, don't want to go against you on your show, but I wouldn't recommend people sort of owning their servers because they haven't got a platinum certificate like you. I wouldn't want anything to do with my servers if I had, you know, uh, a ranch full of, of them because I would not know and I don't want to make it my day job to know how to deal with all of that, all of the, the servers. And I don't think that it would help necessarily with keeping my website online because my website is online with my host, uh, with my whoever's hosting. I can buy my own hosting and then I could control my own hosting. And in fact, I have controlled, I think I still control some of my own hosting. But if Google, which is how a lot of my business is found or where I advertise, decides to cut me up, I'm cut off anyway, regardless of my servers, regardless of my, of my infrastructure. Yeah, and it depends what type of business that you're doing. Um, because I handle, um, we have a, you know, it's like I call it like a department is how I break down the different things. And for the influencers and for the stuff that we do in healthcare, it's um, necessary. It's necesito if I practice my my Spanish. Because why not? You've been practicing your Ebo. My Ebo? <laughs> you'll have to you have to break that down for me. You know, I'm. I, I, <laughs> I'll practice with you if you'll be so kind and patient. You'll need to be patient. Um, but um, as an influencer, you have to have your own server, in my opinion, because we see people, crazy people here in the States, like Alex Jones, but also folks that are banned in the UK, like Louis Farrakhan, being kicked off of social media altogether. So you need to be able to control your narrative. The same way in healthcare, 
because you're dealing with sensitive information, it's um, depending on the type of work you're doing legally, you need to be able to control your data. And I can't trust GoDaddy to do that. I have over 20 websites on GoDaddy. I can't trust GoDaddy for certain things to do. And then no, I, I, I completely, I understand where you're coming from. And I, I just think that I have to be really careful every day that I'm working on the thing that I, I am an expert at. It's quite easy to get sucked into all the other bits of being an entrepreneur and having to be everything all the time. But one thing I try to be a bit religious about is just saying, this is not my thing. I can't do this. You know, they're, they're developer actions that you have to do on your website sometimes, right? And I'm very curious and I feel like I can do anything and most of the time I can. So I try and then I, I'm, but it's taking up my time and it's taking me away from the thing that I love, from the thing that is my, is my avowed occupation. And you kind of think, okay, this may not be the best use of my time, but I think that you're right in terms of saying, think about where you're hosting, think about who owns that, think about who controls it, think about how much control you have over your, your collateral uh, in case of, I think specifically really around security, I think security is a big thing. And I think most organizations still struggle in terms of technical security, uh, uh, scalability of the systems that they base their businesses on. And definitely as a capability issue, that's something people need to look at. No, definitely. And everyone, you know, has their lane and their thing. And I know what type of entrepreneur I want it to be like at 12. And I know what I don't want to handle. Like my, my days are quite flexible unless I do interviews like this where I have to be on time and we got to do the time difference and all that. And, and, and that's very key to me because even when we're in Cameroon, I'm like, I want to be where I'm at and I don't want to have to be anywhere. So someone else can be there as, you know, the, the representative um, for me. But um, I, I, spending time with family is a, is, is a big thing. Um, I'm a homeschool parent now um, really? since COVID. Well, because okay. of COVID. Aren't we, aren't we all? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I found out, speaking about saying I could do everything, I found out a teacher, I am not. <laughs> I, had to, I had to send messages to some of our teachers to say, we are not worthy. You guys are doing an incredible job. I will never take you for granted again. So I think my kids are like, send me out there to deal with COVID. I don't want to be dealing with mom. Just get me out of here. That was well, my kids. You guys have handled it differently. Plus, I know, you know, I know entrepreneurs, it took a little bit for the government to get things together. But people who had jobs, they got 80% of their salary. I believe entrepreneurs now, you know, they've, they've hooked that up as well. But here we've had so many more deaths than you. I can't even, I can't risk it um, to send them out because every week at our school, kids' school, beautiful school, beautiful area, but every week somebody got COVID and I'm, I can't risk it. And my wife working in the hospital, but she doesn't work with patients, mm -hmm. um, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time. I, I just can't risk it. And I've done, I've been a, a substitute teacher before. And I knew it wasn't for me then because I said, this is nothing like when I was in grad school teaching, you know, here in America, kids are very unruly. I was in the hood um, teaching mainly black and brown kids who, like myself, were bored because they only hear about themselves being slaves, being conquered by people. So I understood it. But the mentality is I don't even want to be here, which I was kind of one of those people. I just couldn't be disrespectful or I would have got it at home. 
with a, a serious cane. Yeah. Yeah, I think, again, a lot to unpack there. So we've handled things quite different. Well, I don't know. I don't know how, how much differently. I think we've just, we've had a lot of deaths. We've had a lot of avoidable deaths. Anybody will say that to you. Um, but the schools have acted extremely responsibly and been really ahead of, ahead of the curve in preparing for the children and making sure that they're as safe as possible. So now we are in lockdown ostensibly <laughs> but the kids go to school every day the children go to college every day the kids are penned up at university um i the numbers are going up but the the, the lockdown i think we should start seeing uh, an improvement in the next in the next couple of weeks um so you know people it's not like the first lockdown where it was everybody was properly locked down we all came to work at home nobody was going out on the trains anymore because our tubes are properly packed in the morning you don't want to be on them uh, and the, the, I think the thought was quite scary for everyone at the time, but some people still had to go to work, so they did. In terms of being in class and hearing about slaves, I have to say that here in England, I wish there would be more race um, history education. I don't think, I don't have a memory of being in primary school and ever being taught about slavery or even in secondary school. And there are lots of reasons why you could struggle uh, as a black child in this country, but it really wasn't because we were being told that we were slaves in class. I mean, a lot of it would probably be nonverbal and you wouldn't have been able to articulate what made you uneasy until you were a bit older because they just, it just isn't overt like that. Most people really don't, are not, don't have a problem, right? Most people are not looking at you and thinking, anything bad about you because you're black or anything that's been my experience um so I, I think our experiences would have been slightly different at school and then um not as did you say you were in the hood so i think our neighborhoods are quite different here um and in the way that children are integrated in school we're always with asian children um white children Indian children, you know, we were all mixed up. So you never went to a school where it was, everybody was black or everybody was white. It was all pretty much mixed up. And now that my kids are growing, we have Japanese people, we have a lot of Eastern Europeans, we have lots of Russians. So there's, I'm, I'm a big fan of the amalgam. I think it's very important for us all to see that diversity and grow with that diversity. I think it makes us all better. I think it makes us all more open. I think it makes us all more able in all, in all ways. Well, I'm glad you said that about the UK because I love London. Um, I named my oldest child London. I have a 10 year old named London. <laughs> my little, How does he feel about that? Huh? How does he or she feel about that? She, she, she loves it. And we went last year and she was like, okay, I like it. And you know, we, we did a whole Europe tour all the way to Malta. And, and it, was, it, was, it was a beautiful thing. And I have a Sydney as well. My wife named her. But when I would visit London as a single man, I mean, I just, I didn't feel that. It was like everything was kind of lifted off my shoulders that from the States. And then yeah. I would talk to other black British, mainly folks from the Caribbean or their parents from the Caribbean. And they felt sometimes a certain way. But my, my friends from like Zimbabwe, um, you know, we, they never really had that issue. I, and I, and I loved, I, I just love being there 
but I'm kind of naive. The same way when I would go to South Africa, I'd be naive, like, oh, things are all fair now until you really look at it and you're like, okay, I'm just, I have American privilege is what I call it. And I have, huh. I have to be um, cognizant of that even when I go to Africa, that I have American privilege by visual, they can tell usually, by especially when I talk and there's certain things that I'll be able to do that my friends will feel like I could never do that. Like simple things, like even going to the bathroom at a nice restaurant, but not being a patron there, you know? And they're like, they'll let you go. And I've heard that in Kenya. I've heard that in South Africa, even, oh, those are the boards, but they'll let you go. And I've, you know, I open my mouth and it's, hey, the Americans here. So I think <laughs> have to keep that in mind when they say, oh, this place was great. I don't know what, you know, Nigerians are talking about or what Kenyans are talking about. These Indians treat us good. It's no, you're going to be treated different because of where you come from. And, and you need to, you know, understand that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a case for you're going to be treated different because of where you come from. But ultimately, you're going to be treated differently because of who is treating with you. Right. If the person that's treating with you is inclined to have preconceptions about you and have problems with those preconceptions, then you're going to have a problem. If there are people who don't have preconceptions or, you know, most of us, most of us operate under some kind of cognitive bias, but those biases don't necessarily inform the way that they act towards you or, or judge your actions, then you're going to be fine. And I think I can say that for the most part, I think that that's the case. I think a lot of people that you meet, don't, they're not bothered. They just, you're just a person, they're a person, everyone gets on with it. Having said that, with Brexit, that's been, I've seen things I never saw before, things I never heard before are being said. And that's really painful. And that's really, that's worrying. I mean, that that concerns me. Um, and I, I hope that it, it won't stay. Um, but it's just, it's it's been the zeitgeist for a while. I think you guys have had it there, you know, the increase of, um, bigotry, anti-race bigotry. I think that's something that people have seen across the West quite a lot recently. But I have to say that I think we probably have a lot less problems with race here than you do, but we do have significant problems, right? Um, so that's not, to, that's not to invalidate anybody's experiences or to say, oh, you know, we're, we're super snow white over here. We've got no problems. That's not the case. I'm just saying that in terms of schools, my problem would be the opposite. I would like them to teach about slavery. I would like them to teach more about race history. So for example, what happened on the Easter Islands? What happened to Native, in, uh, Native Americans? What happened to you know, people that were in their countries and they got, and they got colonized? So, to, so that people have a timeline of why Africans are in the Commonwealth, right? A timeline of why the Jamaicans are, have come from Africa, but are now, in the Caribbean or in America and don't say things to them like, which has started happening more often here. All my life I lived here, nobody ever said to me, go back to your country. But now a lot of people will say, somebody said to me, go back to my country. Or somebody said, where are you from? <laughs> you know, in a way like that assumes that they're not from here. It's a little bit discombobulating stuff that wouldn't happen before. And I just think it would be helpful to everyone if people understood what the real history of race and people's placement, where you find them now is. I think it just helps everyone to be educated. Well, there's a shift and um, taken from a quote by the YouTuber, the nomad capitalist, the 
I would say go where you're treated best. Yeah. And, you know, you come to America and, and let's say you come to a place like Houston where there's over a million Nigerians, right? And now you start talking and you have all this education, all this experience, and then you start talking with that British accent. It's you're put up higher because, oh, the, the folks who actually know this language properly, you know, we, we murder the English language. And the, um, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but my first time in, in London decades ago, I heard on the tour that we were on a, a white woman um, say, young, we were all young. And she was like to the British man, white British guy, hey, it's not windscreen, it's windshield. And it's not spectacles, it's glasses and the American arrogance, right? And so I think finally people understand, hey, in the 30s, 40s and beyond, these are the people who actually brought the language. Somewhere they did geography and did their history right. But if you come to a Houston in many circles, you would be looked at as better than, than somebody who is maybe from Houston. And even here in America, people will say, the immigrants are taking over everything. And I say, no, but you have to understand that Nigerians go get so many degrees, you can't tell them nothing. You know, you and then they'll start a business and then they actually have the group economics that folks like um, Dr. Claude Anderson have written about for before all of us were alive. But you yeah. won't apply them and you want to feel sorry for yourself. It's that they are working the plan the same way the Jews do it, the same way the Indians do it. So, you know, it's and, and I'm willing to make that shift. I don't plan to be in America. I'm ready. I tell my wife for the last decade, I'm like, hey. Tell me when you're ready. I can do this anywhere in the world. We've all, you know, we're, we've built things. We're building, we're investing, we're doing what we have to do. And she just has to, she's told me five years, she's ready, you know, to do a six months on, six months off and go around the world if we want to. That sounds like it's going to be fun. I might join you. Um, I think what you're describing about somebody picking somebody up and say, oh, that's the British accent, that's better than everybody else. I think you'll find there's several things going on there. There's storytelling, right? So somebody's, over time, people believe that, you know, we originally came, the, the white people in America originally came from the UK, you know, they actually are the, 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 the owners and arbiters of the original English language, you know, it's a story we tell ourselves, it's a story you tell yourself. But I think that's, if someone says, oh, there's an English person actually telling us that he's better. Uh, I think you'll find that's a class issue. You're very unlikely to find somebody who is landed, extremely educated in America, comes from a, a particular kind of background, who thinks an Englishman is better than him by virtue of his accent, you know? And I think that that's just to do with a class issue because we have the same thing here. We're all speaking that English you guys are talking about over there, but here we have a lot of stratas of that language. And so we say certain people are posh, certain people are common, he's got a broad accent, he's got a that accent. So it's really just storytelling and how people have learned to um, categorize themselves. You know, if you think about going to Canada, they're going to value somebody who comes in and can speak French in Quebec, then they're going to value somebody who speaks any flavor of English, right? So it really just depends on what that person's perspective is. In general, yes, what you're saying applies, but it just really depends on where they're coming from. Definitely, definitely. And you're more than welcome. Um, you know, I don't know if your kids are younger or older, but my wife, every time we go, she's like, 
who, who do you think wants to go with us? And I said, I don't know too many folks who want to go to Iceland with us, you know, um, at this time. And because I want to go to Iceland. I actually want to go to Iceland. I've been meaning to go to the colder countries, but nobody here, none of my, none of my, none of my people are interested. So I'm on my own, which is why we keep on ending up in the warm, in the warmer climes for holidays. Um, but I think I'm very interested in going to places like Scandinavia, etc. Um, but I also want to go to Cameroon. Some of my my father's people went to went either went to live in Cameroon very very long time ago, and they, I think they're Cameroonian. So every so often somebody comes up, pitches back up from there, um, and and we see them. But they're naturalized Cameroonians now, so I would like to go and see them. Well, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, the Southwest is my my favorite part um, for for various reasons, and and they're very biased reasons um people think it's always the english but it's no it's the investment there <laughs> what we're building but in the beach um because i'm a beach guy uh we're, we're by the water here so i you know i i say this though when it comes to borders it's one africa um you know we know we're bantu uh you know many of us at least from, from that region and it what we didn't create these borders that we know of now and we, we can't let others separate it because sometimes we'll get like here in South Florida, we'll have beefs. And I don't know about the beefs. I'm just hearing about them. Jamaicans and Haitians have a beef. And I say, we're all one people. You guys will have the same Bantu blood. I promise you that, you know, and, and it's no need to beef. And we've let others, outsiders. And I get into this even deeper in relationships because I do some semi-pro date doctoring where I have four couples that I've hooked up and they're married, whatnot. And I, I tell people, you let outsiders dictate your relationship, you'll always be at odds. You know, stop that. What can you put up with? What can you put up with? How crazy are we? Okay, because the similarities of a Nigerian and Cameroonian, I mean, my goodness, if it wasn't for the borders, you know, it, 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 it's one people. And so, I, yeah, that's my little take on that. I think you're right. Uh, my dad told me, I could be wrong, but my dad told me that if you take a contiguous line through where you have a lot of the tribes in Cameroon and Nigeria, that they're actually the same people. It's just that they have, like you say, these borders. But there's a fact that, yes, borders were created by the colonizers, but some of the borders that we we really struggle from today are the reasons why those borders still are problems today. I'll tell you why I say that. So we live in London. London's actually quite, it's a big small city is where I like to think about it. But to think that there are territories here where certain children can't go into, you can't come into this territory. Somebody's going to fight you. This is my territory. It's going to be a beef. Now, these children are not fighting on anything like, oh, I'm from Jamaica or I'm from Nigeria. or They, they could be a Nigerian on that postcode and a Nigerian on that postcode, and they're going to fall out simply because of boundaries they've created in their own heads around something as arbitrary as their postcode. And these kinds of divisions only seem to go on in certain social de demographic inequalities. It's, it's inequities that create these things, right? Uh, it's people struggling to feel like they own something or that they can control something. And then they end up just creating the very same kinds of borders that we are suffering from down in sub-Saharan Africa, right? So 
the borders is a problem all the time, but you need to really question why the borders are arising or why they're being enforced and what people are trying to retain control of. And that's the only way that you can start, you know, start to solve it. Africa's diversity is, it should be a thing of great beauty and a thing that makes, makes it just great beyond belief. Uh, Nigeria alone has so many different ethnicities and, and languages. It's just so rich with language. And, and even if you go through the, um, just the geography, the, the differences that you, you have all kinds, you have savannah, you have desert, you have jungle, you have, you know, even the differences in climate will shock you in one, in one country. So there's a lot to be celebrated, but what we do is tend to break down all the differences. And this is a reason why I'm over here and Igbo, you're over there, you're Yoruba. I mean, I think the last two generations have just shut that nonsense up. You've got Igbo people marrying Yoruba people and, you know, the elders can deal with it. Uh, and you've got Ghanaians marrying Nigerians where, you know, they've had this sort of historic rivalry going on, especially since Nigerians kicked Ghanaians out, you know, sort of about 40 years ago, all that kind of thing going on. Um, but I think the hope is the younger people are coming up now and they, they don't really have much truck with all this unnecessary, unnecessary um, distinctions without a difference. And I think where we still struggle is where people are feeling so um, deprived and so disenfranchised that they just hold on to things that seem quite arbitrary to me and you, like you know, territories and, and postcodes. And, and I tell people, even if you don't want to believe the, uh, the scriptures, um, it's, it's worth reading because the scriptures talk about everything that we're going through, all the problems that we're going through. You could go from Titus to Romans and you can see things on division. And I say, you know, when you're ready, you even go deeper to getting the full scriptures that many of my Ethiopians know about because, you know, 66 books isn't enough. Um, what they call the lost books are just the books they don't want you to read. But you the apocrypha. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't use that, that word be, because um, they're trying to discredit something that was there before them. And when they talk about, you know, religion and the history, they try to whitewash it so much where you would actually think Jesus is who they put that picture on the wall in most churches. But then when you hear even, you know, Israel say, oh, Operation Moses, Operation Solomon, and they came to get the Jews from Ethiopia. And when you talk with Ethiopians or go to Ethiopia and talk and study even more, and I'm not a master at this, people, but just giving you the surface and you see what are in Ecclesiasticus and see what they don't want you to learn. And it's always a personal relationship, right? So no one can really teach you. You just have to want to go learn more and say, okay, that makes sense. Because here in slave times, they, were, they had a version of the Bible that they would cut certain things out for the slaves to be in line. They didn't want the slaves to know certain things. And the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan, still runs off some of that Bible while they call themselves Christians, but they're not reading off the same book because you would whoop them with the Bible if you knew even a little about your Bible and you know, you'd bring up stuff and say, how could, it says love your neighbor, but that's not how they see it. It's not just interpretation, it's what they're reading, how they're reading, and they've done a good job of fooling many of our people. And as you know, 
in Nigeria and around the world, uh, religion has been something that's just been monetized and abused to the fact where you're like, you don't know who to trust. So you have to start at home and with yourself um, just, just to get that. But um, don't want to go on a tangent on religion. I do want to know more about you, though. And I want to know for everything that you do, what is your community give back? that you do or that you want to do in the future? Um, so the, the community is a very important part of my life and what I, how I see myself. So um, I work, I do some work with uh, my children's school to get involved with initiatives that I'm very, I love children. Children is my is my thing. Um, anybody's child is my, you know, I, I can't stand anybody being cruel to children. And I really struggle when I see a child suffering because all I can see is my child. So anything that has to do with children, I'm always just want to do something. So I do work with uh, local charities and um, my church and uh, with my school, I run the PTA. And we do a lot of work around just helping schools out, helping, you know, running charity, uh, doing charitable work and helping around um, giving them tools or giving them money to buy equipment. Or right now we're planning a drive for Christmas. There's a guy over here, an incredible 22-year-old who is a leader, uh, really. He has changed the, the conversation in the country around what happens to children when they're not in school. And, um, and trying to get the government to make provision for them in the holidays, especially through the coronavirus shutdown, where they might have been going to school and getting food, but because of the shutdown, they, they weren't getting those meals anymore. And he managed to get quite a turnaround from the government. And then he extended it really to say, well, what's going to happen to them at Christmas? What's going to happen when they're not in a place where they have a guaranteed meal? So we're working on making sure that schools get food in the holidays. So we'll go up, we'll pick up the food and we'll distribute it. And it's not enough. It's nowhere near enough. It's, it's really nothing in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, that's my focus in the communities, what, whatever, whatever we can do for children. Okay. And, and I love that. And I always think when I do this podcast, you know, how can we educate even a 14 year old who has an idea of what they want to do. Like I said, I had this idea of how my firm is at 12, not knowing exactly how it was going to come about. We just think, oh, college and whatever. But it was in me um, then. But I want to know, like, if we can leave the people with not to because I don't want to give them a game overload. I want them to be able to contact you and, and reach out um, for their you know individual purposes. But what, how do you deal with clients and how you build them and, and make them pay? Is it a retainer? Is it a, you know, an invoice after the work is done? Because I see many people, many peers of mine uh, struggle with that, where everything for me is almost automated. You call me, you get an automated text, book a time, you know, um, and, and, and it, everything is just, I, I have a structure because again, I like my freedom, but how do you deal with that? Because young and old, that can help. Um, my business model, some things can be automated, but where people are contacting me, yes. 
uh, they could contact me on on, my, on a landing particular landing page, um, and they could send emails or they could fill forms. So those things are automated. But I'm working with you know sort of larger businesses, and they want to be speaking to somebody. So I like speaking. I like talking. I like to get a feel for people, and I want them to get a feel for me. Do you see? Do you feel that I can help you? Do you want to work with me? Do you, you know? I, the way that we work, the way that we would look at your problem, the way that we would try to get involved in your business. So that's really very important, that initial communication. In terms of billing, so when it depends on what service that they're getting from you. So if it's things like something that happens monthly after you've done an initial piece of work for them, then that's on a retainer basis. Um, but normally people come, you do an initial consultation and you scope out the work, you scope out what you think needs to happen in each of the areas where there are problems and you give an initial ballpark estimate when you go and do the discovery then you will flesh that out you know ordinarily just you know it might be 10 or 20 percent more than what you thought it was going to be depending on how much the client decides to actually solve at that time and then uh, i will i often ask for a 50 percent deposit and then um, another 25% and another 25% when everything is done and you before you deliver as far as possible, but it depends on what that delivery mode looks like. Um, one thing that we struggle with is people not paying on time for, you know, sort of, um, you know, 30 days, then 60 days, then 90 days. Um, and that's just, it. it's just, Par for the course with a lot of big companies that they just tend to have that issue. Even the fifty percent deposit sometimes is, a, is an issue with certain problem with certain companies. So there are some people that will just always be late later payers, and there are some people that are just not. So you manage that as best as best as you can through relationships, through communications, and um, that's really the best that you can hope for. Well, I, I just sent you another book when you said that, that I hope helps. Thank um, you. Yeah, and it, this this one isn't one that, you know, you can, you, you have to buy this one, but it's- uh, this I'll one, buy it if this, I think it's good, this, for sure. In consulting, the king of consulting, uh, and I will brag, a, a past guest and somebody that I, I like to check in on time to time, Alan Weiss, no one's written more books in consulting than him. Yeah. And, and he has some solutions for some of the things that you are, are talking about. Um, I, again, you guys can't get a game overload, but you can email her. You can see her links in the description box. We're going to take our conversation offline. And I hope this has blessed you, informed you, and that you like, share, subscribe, wherever you are listening or watching. Be blessed. Thank you for watching. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kellen. Thank you. Thanks for getting in the game and listening to the Diversified Game Podcast with Kellen, the number one show pairing entrepreneurship with diverse and inclusive perspectives like wine and cheese, bagel and locks, fish and grits. Be sure to visit DiversifiedGame.com for all the good stuff. Join in the conversation and discover more content.